podcast is brought to you by CEW Plus at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor as we work to serve our community during this unprecedented time of change. Resiliency is best demonstrated in times of challenges. Join CEW Plus Director Tiffany Mara as she talks to students, staff, faculty, and community members connected to the University of Michigan's Center for the Education of Women Plus in our podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. Uh, Today's podcast features Patricia Berry, a fundraising consultant and executive coach practicing nationwide. She's worked as a relationship-focused fundraiser in both Ivy League and public education institutions, including Columbia University in New York City and the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor for over 20 years. Patricia, welcome to the Strength in the Midst of Change podcast. Um, Would you mind please introducing yourself and telling me a bit about what prompted you to start your consulting business? such a long story, but I think a good one. So I've had a consulting business as well as a full-time job, you know, at the same time for my entire fundraising career. But the last two years, I really leaned in and now I'm doing it full-time. And I think that came about from a couple of things. I came out to work for the University of Michigan in I think it's been about 10 years. So it was the winter of 2010. I came out to do their relationship fundraising program, which is their stewardship program. After 20 years of living and working in New York City, and when I came to Michigan, I never thought I would leave New York City. I lived in a rent-stabilized apartment for anybody who understands what that is. It's as good as gold in New York City and had a chance to work in higher education in a number of ways and really start to do some research and some trend analysis on relationship-focused fundraising. Um, And again, I thought that I'd probably get carried out of New York City feet first. I didn't think I'd ever leave, but I had a chance to interview with the University of Michigan and just came out kind of on a lark. I'll be really honest. I thought it was interesting. I'd never been to Ann Arbor before. And ended up, when I went back to New York, realizing that I was going to be moving to Southeast Michigan out of New York City. And this is kind of a long setup for why did I start a business (laughs) that I worked for Michigan for about eight years, but I had a really rocky first three years. So, you know, imagine me, I'd lived in a 400 square foot apartment in New York City for, you know, 20 plus years. And I came out to Michigan and I bought my first house and I bought my first car and I adopted my first dog and I had a a garden that was massive. I was essentially living a life I had no life skills to really live and quite enjoying it. But I had only been in Michigan for about eight months and didn't really have any friends or, you know, other than colleagues and stuff that I had met at work. And I was diagnosed with late stage breast cancer. And the end of the story is I lived and I thrived and it was all really great. But for a while, there was a little touch and go. (laughs) And I was embraced by my neighbors, you know. So I live about 20 minutes out of Ann Arbor in Ypsilanti. And I was living in a beautiful house in Ward 2 in College Heights, Ypsilanti. And my neighbors just embraced me and took care of me through some really tough times. It was a good two or three years of treatment and all sorts of shenanigans. And when I went back to work, I do have to say it 
sounds a little cliche, but it changed me. It changed my perspective and I think changed my approach to a lot of things that I really was digging into really values and relationship focused work and was having the realization that relationships and my community was much more valuable to me than wealth and position. So when it came time to leave the University of Michigan two years ago, again, I just leaned on my community and I said, I don't want to leave. What fundraisers usually do is they pop over to Boston or what's the next big institution that I can go do fundraising for? What's the next campaign? I really didn't want to do that. I First of all, I wanted to explore fundraising in a different, more community and relationship-based way than the transactional way that I had been, you know, practicing it for 20 years. That's what big box fundraising is, is really transactional. And I also didn't want to leave this community. And once again, my community stepped up. I was surrounded by wonderful boss ladies here in Ypsilanti. And in the course of about three weeks, we sorted out how I was going to live and what I was going to do and started my business and, you know, haven't looked back, still really enjoying it. Oh, that's great. When you said your community supported you, now it really is a time when we're all coming together in unique ways and are outside of work. What did that support look like in your small new neighborhood here in Ipsy? Uh, when I was diagnosed, so I had only been an owner of the house for two months, right? So I had rented for a while when I first came to Ann Arbor. And I'd only been owner of the house for two months. And right away when I moved in, like all the neighbors were aggressively friendly and I'm aggressively friendly and it totally worked out. But when I got sick, one neighbor in particular kind of like said, we're your family now. And I never walked a dog. I never went to chemo alone. I never went to surgery alone. They knew I was eating all organic. So they planted me an organic garden in my front yard that I could eat from. And like, even at one point, there was a shot that I had to get the day after chemo that would have required me driving, you know, about 30 minutes round trip. And, you know, for anybody who's done chemo, the day after chemo is not a great day. <laughs> and come to find out, I was surrounded by three nurses and a pediatrician that got on a schedule and, you know, sorted me out. It was really, it was amazing. I have this really firm belief that the universe is kind of on a regular basis, knitting me a sweater. And it doesn't really tell me when the sweater's done, but it's kind of like, okay, it's time for a new sweater. And then you don't realize for a while what the reason was. I totally feel like me discovering, you know, Southeast Michigan, me coming out here was really leading me to this community that was going to enfold me when I was ill. And they just, you know, have continued to be in a lot of ways, closer than family for a good 10 years. So I'm quite grateful for it. Yeah, that's an amazing outpouring of support. You sound like you're also an Ipsy convert. I moved here from California and uh, completely different. And I love the sweater analogy. You know, as you discussed, yeah, the transactional versus what you're doing now, I'm guessing somehow that, that sweater metaphor kind of plays into that as well. How do you approach fundraising in a way that's different than the transactional approach? It's always so interesting when people ask me that question because they're like, well, isn't all fundraising about relationships? And, you know, when you really 
kind of start picking apart our industry as fundraisers, you find some significant challenges. There's a nationwide attrition rate of 18 months. So major gift officers who are responsible for building relationships between people who want to donate to an organization and the organization leave their jobs on average every 18 months. And it's no coincidence that that's usually the life cycle of a gift. You know, so when I meet somebody, when I come on board, it's about 12 to 18 months of getting to know them, engaging them, and then asking them for their next gift. And it's just not sustainable. If you look at people at the executive level, particularly women, they leave the nonprofit fundraising field at an astounding rate of more than 50%. So like not even quitting their jobs, they leave altogether. So you're doing this tremendous churn in nonprofit organizations that relationships are the lifeblood of what you're doing. So what are we doing wrong? <laughs> and that was a lot of like, I would say the last 10 years, I really had a great opportunity to work with some amazing analytics scientists at the University of Michigan, as well as in New York at Columbia University. And we really started to find proof that if you treat people as partners and do the work of relationships, so essentially becoming less transactional, right? It's not just about closing the gift. The gift is an aspect of our relationship, but even a no is important because the donor saying no to us gives us some information and also allows us to continue that relationship even though the donor's not ready to give right now. So the analytics work that I've done has begun to prove that if you do that relationship-based work and really not only treat your employees in a way that's going to retain them in the organization, and that's not about money. I know everybody's always like, well, you don't pay them enough. Study after study has shown that the reason that fundraisers leave an organization is that they feel like their values are not matching the work of the organization, that they're not able to do the kind of relationship work that they want to do. But the analytics shows us that you will actually make more money over time. So essentially you being relationship focused and thinking about your relationship as a journey and a partnership, it's very different than what often happens in our industry now. And this is industry-wide that we're focused on multi-million dollar gifts. We put too much focus on people that are at the top of the giving stream and not enough on the entire ecosystem of the organization so that we're building really healthy, sustainable relationships that essentially have a hundred year trajectory. And that's usually what I bring to my clients is, you know, who is your hundred year friend? Right. And how would you treat a person that you're anticipating having be a partner with this organization spanning generations is different than how you treat somebody who you're only interested in the next 18 months so you can close a gift. So that's transactional, right? Then thinking about them in generational terms, in the hundred year term, that's transformational and you approach it in a far different way. Yeah, so you had mentioned the gender difference. So what leads to the greater attrition issue with women? Is it related to this? I think it probably is. And now I'm going to go into things that are opinions <laughs> and not necessarily things that I know. But 
I have a lot of strong opinions, but they're all loosely held. So I'm happy to have a conversation about them if they seem wrong. But I would say probably what's happening is if you look at gender differences in organizations, particularly women that go to work in nonprofits, there's an idea about service above and beyond. And so often women in nonprofits are not only putting in more time than they really should, they don't have a balanced life, but they're being requested to put in more time than they actually should. And working harder and not smarter, because I mean, Americans are really weird about this kind of stuff, that we somehow want to give somebody a badge of courage because they worked 14 hours yesterday, right? And me as a manager and me thinking about uh, organizations as ecosystems, I'm like, that's actually not sustainable. You know, the last job that I was in, if staff members came to me wanting a little badge of courage, you know, for working a bunch of overtime, they were sadly surprised when I looked at them. And I said, there's either something wrong with you or the job or the way you're doing the job. Like, this is not actually something I'm going to give you kudos for. And once we stopped doing that, and once we started to unhook the team that I had, out of that, what it leads you to do is, again, start to think about the organization's ecosystem. You know, there's no heroes in an ecosystem. Everybody's required to work together. I was director of development at the University of Michigan library system. And we started saying, you know, there's no heroes for working overtime. If you're killing yourself, it's either the organization that's asking too much for you or the job's not designed correctly or what. It's just not a healthy approach. Once we stopped rewarding people for working ridiculous overtime, they begin to have to think about, well, if I can't do this, what door am I shutting to somebody else or something else in this ecosystem that could help us fundraise? And by leaning into that question, we realized a 40% increase in revenue over two years, which is actually kind of difficult when you're a new fundraising team in a place. And, you know, we saw the biggest donations that the library had ever had to that date. And everybody went home at five o'clock. And if anything, we were starting to get some weird attention about like, why is nobody killing themselves here? And so I would point to that kind of, you know, the first response, even though we're making a ton more money, working less, engaging our entire ecosystem into the muscle of what we're doing here. And then sometimes the feedback was, we don't understand what you're doing because you're not here till eight o'clock at night. That's the problem with women in nonprofit, that that's seen as the badge of courage rather than the output, right? Rather than the systems working better, smoother, and not quite so hot, if that makes any sense. If you're doing fundraising in a really relationship way, there should never be a fundraising emergency. Yeah, that's interesting. The 18 months of a major gift officer, that's really surprising the transition happens that much, given how much the longevity of a relationship really does matter. Exactly. And if you look at our industry, you know, and I'm not exempt from that, I usually would stay in places four years, but I was never rewarded for those four years. If anything, I made less money than my counterparts that were hopping, you know, between jobs. Because the way that we are incentivized is we will never pay you what you're worth in this organization. You know, I love nonprofit, don't get me wrong, <laughs> but it's partially my love for it that I can't do it within a system that is unwilling to be transformed. 
And that was one impetus about going and starting my own. Like I really focus on the executive director level because it's usually not the fundraisers who are the problem. It's people who don't understand what it takes to build long-term relationships and that the money is one aspect of the relationship, but not the core. And a lot of times it's executive directors and board members who don't understand what it takes. And so a lot of my consulting business is focused at the executive director and board level, because if I could get them trained and practicing and feeling like money's not gross, you know, and that raising money is not somehow shameful, they'll stop trying to push it away from themselves, right? They should be included in this. They should be very clear about what fundraising is like. Because usually when they hire a fundraiser, that fundraiser knows what to do, but they're often thwarted by people who don't understand that they're doing the work of relationship, which is messy and long-term and sometimes includes no, both on the organization's side as well as the donor's side. That's great work that you're doing to kind of transform the entire industry, you know, one nonprofit at a time. So I know the work that you've been doing with CEW constituents focuses on uh, the notion of tacit knowledge and vision muscles. Can you tell me more about that work and how it has developed over time? So this is a story that kind of makes me laugh. So CEW may be familiar with Dr. Diana Wong who teaches at Eastern Michigan University in the business school there. And I've known Diana since I moved to Michigan. She's just been a wonderful, really delightful part of my community. And we've been talking for years about the importance of relationships and visioning in particular. So when I left my job at the University of Michigan, I was lucky enough to be able to kind of take a year to just do some stuff. You know, I helped a friend in Asheville create a nonprofit. I kind of wandered around the world. I slept in a lot. (laughs) And it was necessary. It was really necessary to kind of decompress and just really start to sink in to a very thoughtful inner discussion about what do I really value and what do I want to create in the world. And so in pursuit of that, I told selected people I love, including Dr. Diana Wong, (laughs) that it was my year of yes, that as long as I could afford it and that it wasn't hurting anybody else, there was a really good chance I would say yes to whatever anybody invited me to. And so Diana took that with a vengeance. And <laughs> one day, you know, called me up and she said, on Thursday, you're going to come to this thing and here's the address and you're going to bring, you know, this money to pay for it. And it's going to be a four hour workshop. You're going to love it. I had no idea what she was talking about. And what it was, was a workshop on a practice called soul collage. And if she would have told me what it was about beforehand, that we were going to sit and do some art and then talk about feelings, I would have said, no way. (laughs) I'm getting involved in that. That seems weird. So luckily I didn't ask her that question. And I went to this wonderful workshop and, you know, ended up having a very talented facilitator teach us you know, soul collage, which is really interesting mashup of Jungian psychology and creating your own tarot card deck. So you create these little mini collages and then you do some facilitated work, journaling and then sharing and thinking about why you created the collages. And the process that they use in the journaling is once you create the collage on this card, You sit down with it and you begin to 
essentially just kind of commune with the card a little bit. And you do it through finishing a sentence multiple times. And every sentence starts with, I am one who. And strangely and delightfully, as I've continued this practice over the last year or so, that I am one who has become a little bit of a magic spell. The idea of selecting an image for no other reason than maybe you have a soft question in your mind about like, tell me what I should be focusing on this coming week. Then I go select an image and then I begin to do that work of reflection while I'm staring at the image and completing the sentence, I am one who. And what that does is it gets you out of your resume brain, right? Your resume brain is all about the words and who am I impressing and who's listening to me and how am I presenting this? And it gets you into that intuitive muscle, that vision muscle. And, you know, again, I'll make a rather sweeping statement. I feel like women get trained out of using that muscle that it's much easier sometimes for a man in a boardroom to say, we're just doing it because I think it's right. Women often have to, we have to have all the data with us and we have to, you know, have thought about our arguments ahead of time. When in reality, if you just would go with that gut feeling, and I'm not saying all the time, it has to be informed by facts and placed within context, but there's a lot to be learned from there. And there's a lot to imagine yourself into. So that accessing of tacit knowledge has been an amazing gift for me, even as, you know, I took my year of yes. <laughs> and then right before the pandemic hit, I had really leaned into starting to market my business and develop a longer client list. And all of the sense of unworthiness that often comes with that kind of move, right? I shouldn't be doing this. Who do I think I am? And if I select a picture with that, you know, kind of self-critical statement in your heart about who do I think I am? And suddenly you select a picture that is somebody flying. You know, well, I am one who flies. I am one who rises. I am one who learns. I am one who traverses. I am one who transcends. You begin to tell yourself a story that you already know but you just haven't pulled out the knowledge. And that's that delving into that tacit knowledge. And I use it all the time. It is. It's like a magic spell for me. So it's almost like the image unlocks something that you already know, but you just need a reminder of. Not even a reminder. You just need to put words to it. I mean, you chose that image for a reason. Right. There was something in that image, and this is where the Jungian psychology comes in. There's something in that image that called to you. There was something you knew. I just like that image. And it could be, you know, every image has a light side and a dark side. And I know all of this sounds a little woo-woo. <laughs> but how I use it with my clients is really to get them into visioning and unlocking that mission that actually is going to inspire others because it comes so deeply from the heart. So a lot of times when I'm working with nonprofits, particularly young nonprofits, I'll say, you know, tell me what your mission is. Why do I want to give to you? 
and they have about a four-page written statement that they trot out, and I'm snoozing, <laughs> you know? I'm like, that's not passionate. I'm not dipping into my hard-earned dollars to do that. Like, what do you really want to do? And I'll send them through the version of the online workshop that we do, which is we go out and select an image. So we're not creating a collage. We're just selecting an image from about 100. I have usually any given exercise. And you just select an image that calls to you. And then you begin to do that I am one who reflecting process. And they come out with amazing things. Every workshop, I'm surprised and delighted. I had one woman in one of the CEW workshops. This woman came out with this amazing insight that was so visceral and real about, I am one who has no legs and arms and I'm facing my mortality. And this was somebody, you know, who didn't come into the workshop thinking she was going to get a big real revelation. But that's, she suddenly tapped into something that was way down there that she just hadn't been able to visualize yet. That's a very moving story and experience. How does this play out in, you know, our everyday lives in decision making? Um, How does having a stronger vision muscle help with that? I think if you can imagine yourself, you can do it. I was the first in my generation to go to college And nobody could understand that I had chosen to do comparative literature. Like, what is that going to, what kind of job is that going to get you? (laughs) You know, they would have understood it if I had done teaching or nursing or something that they could see you immediately have a straight line to a profession. So, you know, somebody like me who grew up in, we were lower economic class in, you know, what was at that time a small town in the West, to be able to go to New York and imagine that I could work landing multi-million dollar gifts in billion dollar campaigns. You've got to be able to imagine that. So I don't know if I consciously knew what I was doing back in the day, but this is like a way that I'm now more conscious of, I need to see myself. I am one who owns a business. I use it every day to imagine myself into the place that I know I can be, but I still, you know, have a lot of words between me and that idea of what I want to be. And a lot of people struggle with what does it look like if I'm successful? Because there's a lot of people that tell you what success is. And if you listen to, you know, standard media, it would be money and power, Mm -hmm. right? But what if your success is something totally different? You know, when I access my vision muscle, my success is surrounded by wonderful, creative, brave people. And my success is doing work that I love every day. And don't get me wrong. I like money. Like I'm a great negotiator, you know, the core of my work is getting people over their fear and trepidation about talking about money. There's nothing shameful about it. But I don't place money at the center. It's just a piece of information and a tool to get me where it is that I'm going. So when I think about, you know, working with these images, it's building up that muscle of imagining what could be next, as well as understanding more deeply where I am right now. 
because you can't begin a journey unless you know where you're at. Yeah, now every time you go through this visioning exercise, is it a different image that you're selecting, or do you see yourself returning to similar images over time? So I do the soul collage practice, which is actually creating your own deck of soul collage images. So I have about 65 probably at this point now, and I've done work with all of them. But sometimes before I did all of the last workshops, I would go into that deck and pull out an image and kind of say, what do I need to know today? And that image would usually have some kind of symbolism for me. So even going back to the same image on a different day can result in different insights. So for every workshop I do, I usually try to create a new deck of images. But even if you came back to the same workshop with the same subject matter on a different day with the same images, chances are you would be drawn to a different one. And that's the beauty of the work. It's all you. Mm -hmm. And how, you know, we've all been through a lot of stress this past year. 2020 has been remarkable. Beyond the soul collage work, what other self-care practices are you using to kind of get through? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, it's been so interesting, the transformation. For years, when people ask me what I did for a living, I would usually say I'm a community builder. And I happen to do that in fundraising because there's nothing that more quickly either solidifies a great relationship or ruins a relationship than dealing with money. So community is really important to me. And then suddenly to be cut off from that has been a challenge. This is a lesson that I have to say I probably learned from when I had cancer. I decided really at the beginning of the whole cancer cruise that I could not affect the reality that was in front of me. Like whatever was going to happen was going to happen. The only thing I had power over was my attitude about it and how I chose to interpret it. And, you know, from that, what I decided with cancer was, you know, what you're going to learn here is you're going to have to learn how to ask for help. You know, before that, before cancer, I had always been the person who gave help. I was very generous. <laughs> and the realization that I had after cancer is that asking for help is actually generosity as well, even when they say no. And that was usually the deal I had with my friends is you're allowed to say no but I need to start learning how to ask and that's what I'm going to learn. So my question at the beginning of the pandemic was, I cannot change the facts. Like this is happening. I'm also immune compromised. So there's not a lot of going out and there's not a lot of hugs, but you know what we can do is we can create a pod, you know, a group of people who have agreements about staying safe in the outside world so that we can come together without masks and feel very safe because we have agreed upon norms and behaviors, just like a family. And that was an interesting way to think about community in really hardcore negotiations, right? It's hard to tell somebody, you know what, you go to this place without a mask, you're going to have to sit at home for two weeks. Like you can't come to this community until you have quarantined for the required amount of time. So self-care is really leaning into that community in a very 
discussion of boundaries oriented way in some ways that's very difficult because also we're dealing with very divergent political issues right now and how do we talk about that and this kind of boundary setting that I've done with people in my pod as well as we call the ones that are just the next wave out the pod plus has been a real revelation in I think good friendship building and good family building skills about we talked about how we were going to discuss with each other if somebody was doing something that made us feel unsafe so that is like probably the cornerstone of my self-care the smaller stuff is a I make my bed every day and that may sound silly, but it indicates to me that you probably shouldn't get back into it until later tonight. <laughs> and some days that is a hard negotiation with myself. <laughs> the other thing, you know, working from home now, you know, I used to rent space at the back office studio. So I was used to going into my office every day and seeing my clients in person and, you know, having coworkers. So like now I make sure that after I get done with every hour and a half of work that I go walk around the block because I really recognize it makes me feel better to get some sunshine therapy. And again, going back to that old skill, asking for what I need from the people around me. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people listening are struggling, you know, are dealing with a lot going on in the world right now. And it sounds like the community in your block mean a lot to you. So what I'm going to ask you for your last question is, imagine that someone in your pod, um, that you wanted to provide inspirational words for them, what might you tell them that others that you don't know might be able to also gain from? That's a great question. I think my core belief is that none of us arrived at this knowing how to successfully do it. So one way you can consider approaching it is what do you have to learn through this? And sometimes that learning can be as simple as how do I care for myself in the middle of the apocalypse? And caring for myself is sometimes eating too many French fries. And recognizing and being present with well, if I have chosen to eat a lot of French fries as comfort food, how did that make me feel at the end of it? And I'm not talking about how society makes you feel or whatever, like physically check into your body. And if you still want to make the same decision later, that's fine. Then physically check in with your body. And, you know, just kind of really care for yourself as you would, you know, a young person that was asking you for help. I think we often have so many great intentions and support for others and we leave ourselves to the last. And just remembering that you're a part of your community too and you're part of a compassionate outpouring that it's impossible for you to sustain and uphold others if you haven't cared for yourself first. So I don't know if that's really tactical or more of an approach of just really being present with whatever comes. So I'm a Buddhist. One of the things that I've done during this whole pandemic shenanigans is dug a little deeper into reading about the history of Buddhism and, and reading some of the spiritual materials that come with it, which has been tremendously comforting during this time. But one of the 
Buddhist ideas is instead of pushing away pain, invite it to tea and have a conversation with it. And that weirdly is very much what we're doing, you know, in selecting an image. Because the image that we select when we do this workshop on visioning doesn't have to be a positive image. Like I'm not in any way asking you to ascribe value to what the image is. The image may be an image of one of your life's difficulties and you're inviting it to tea. And that's very much a Buddhist idea to invite life's difficulties to tea and sit down with it and offer it comfort and listen to it. You know, this is real time. And if you have the opportunity to listen to what it's teaching us, you know, that's the only way we can go forward. It's a muscle. How we learn to deal with this, how we become transformed by it will not magically arrive. There's work to be done. It does give practical advice though to, you know, lean into what's bothering us and where the pain is versus ignoring it and running from it. Patricia, thank you so much for participating. I greatly appreciate getting to talk to you and learn from you. Um, And I know that other listeners will as well. Thank you, Tiffany. This has just been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to CEW's podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. To learn more about this episode or the services and virtual programming offered by CEW+, please visit cew.umich.edu. Here at CEW+, we navigate circumstantial barriers by providing academic, financial, and professional support to help you reach your personal potential. Established to support women through higher education, we lift up women and all underserved communities at the University of Michigan and beyond. Through career and education counseling, funding, workshops, events, and a diverse, welcoming community, we exist to empower. We are CEW+, and we are here to help you reach your potential. The University of Michigan resides on the traditional territories of the three fires peoples, the Ojibwa, Odawa, and Potawatomi.